Life on planet Earth has sustained itself over billions of years through its fundamental regenerative impulse. Every second of every day, our cells are fed, nourished, and regenerated by the living systems around us. And our presence, in turn, enables other species to thrive. But our current way of living is interfering with these vital processes and undermining the very systems that enable all of us to survive. We urgently need a new collective story for humanity as nature, one that celebrates the diversity within the human family and recognizes our interconnection with the rest of life on Earth. A story that galvanizes collaborative action towards regenerative futures. I'm Daniel Wahl, author of Designing Regenerative Cultures. And I'm Philippa Duthie, Oceania Director at the RSA. You're listening to Series 2 of Regeneration Rising, a podcast exploring how we can create a thriving home for all on our planet. In this conversation, we're delighted to be joined by biomimicry pioneers Janine Benyus and Dr. Dana Bomeister. Over the last two and a half decades, Dana and Janine have worked together to evolve the practice of biomimicry from a meme to a movement, inspiring millions around the world to learn from the genius of nature. In 1998, they co-founded the Biomimicry Guild, the world's first bio-inspired innovation consultancy. Since then, their work has evolved to encompass initiatives across education, innovation and systems change, providing students and innovators with the tools and training necessary to design nature-inspired solutions for a healthy planet. Welcome, Dana and Janine. Your work together has really shaped the field of biomimicry. For listeners who may not be familiar with your work, can you explain what the practice of biomimicry is? Well, the way way I think of it is the conscious emulation of life's genius, with every single one of those words being really important. That's how we we think of it. It's, It's innovation inspired by nature. And it's it's when people are designing something, or even when they're making a decision, they go and they say, what in the natural world has already solved what I'm trying to solve? Because we are nature. And then learning about that, and then trying to emulate that, and then giving thanks for that emulation, actually. We see it in a very holistic way. So conscious means you're consciously going with a lot of humility to ask the natural world, the rest of the natural world, what, what you're trying to solve. And emulation, it's not, it is emulation of spirit as well as the, the actual emulation of the mechanics of something. You're actually looking at it, not just form, but process and ecosystem. So it's emulating the entire um, gestalt of how nature is doing something. And it's the emulation of life's genius. Um, life being a, a larger uh, whole that includes us. Um, so yes, and, and the, short, the short version is it's innovation inspired by nature. Yeah, and I would add a little bit because the, the emulation piece, um, as Janine alluded to, is far more than just a, a copying. It is definitely not a copying. The, there's a reason why we have the word emulation, that it's really about pulling out the lesson and the principles, the design principles from these wisdom keepers about what it means to live here well 
and interpreting that lesson in a way that we can apply it, right? So it's not like we're never going to have a, you know, planes that fly like dragonflies. Like that's just the laws of physics won't allow that. But it doesn't mean that we can't learn from the flight mechanics of what it looks like to not only be fueled with chopped up fly parts, um, but also to think about um, how to how to move your wings through a fluid in which a way that you can create lift. Right? And, and so it's not a direct copying. And a lot of people are critical of biomimicry thinking that, you know, humans are more clever than the rest of nature. Why would we um, lower ourselves to directly copy nature or whatever it might be? But it's, it's far more elegant than that. To actually emulate nature is very, very difficult, very challenging. Um, and to do it well is really to come from that honoring place of what the more than human can can offer us. I had always seen the, the sort of three levels of biomimicry as a choice of focus, almost, that you could say, like, I'm, we're work, doing biomimicry at the form and function level, we're doing biomimicry at the process mm. level, we're doing biomimicry at the ecosystems level. But the way you just worded it actually made me realize that in the in the art of practicing it really deeply, working of any one of these scales, you also ask about the relationship to the other. We do. Well, what we think of it as is um, deepening the biomimicry by including all of those levels. So an example would be, you know, if you're going to mimic, um, I don't know how an abalone makes ceramic, right? You could just mimic the form of it, which is this these beautiful, you know, brick-shaped layers with with protein in between them. And there's it's so tough. You could mimic that form, but that's not how the abalone makes it. The way the abalone makes it is at room temperature in life-friendly conditions. And at the end of its life, it's something that's that's totally, you know, helpful in that environment, not harmful. And then that abalone we also consider is part of a whole ecosystem. And it's also it, the rules that it uses to make the process, to make that abalone, um, that mother of pearl, um, fits into that ecosystem in a way that enhances it. So as, as we talk about shallow biomimicry, you can just mimic the form um, all the way through to systems biomimicry where whatever you, whatever decision you make has to sit in a system as well. And I mean, Dana, with your experience of applying it to companies uh, or with companies, have you, have you seen a more of an evolution that people are going beyond the sort of, we're going to design one fancy biomimicry based product that we then tell a story about to actually looking at the ecosystem scale biomimicry of really looking at the entire production process and, and applying biomimicry on, on the systemic level to really transform how the company functions fun fundamentally. And that's, that is the work, right? That the work of taking it to those deeper levels and the more we engage and the deeper those conversations go, it also allows us to bring in the other part of biomimicry, which isn't just mimicking form process and system, right? So to your question, it's not form process or system, it's form process and system. 
But the ethos and the reconnect piece are equally important. And it's one of the things that differentiates biomimicry from, say, biomimetics or bionics, because it's, you know, it is part of the process that we not only ask the question about, you know, what are we emulating, but what are we applying it for? What are we, what are we trying to solve? Are we trying to make the world a better place in what we're solving? And how are we going about solving it? And are we doing it with that humility and that gratitude that we talked about um, earlier? So that ethos piece is critically important while simultaneously reconnecting with nature, remembering that we are nature. I mean, there's, there's certainly people that have mimicked in an industrial process the abalone that Janine referred to before, and they probably can't even identify an abalone in the field, right? Like they, like they just have recognized that that abalone is part of a larger context, a larger ecosystem, and that by building that reconnect component and seeing ourselves as, as active, important key members in the thriving ecosystem, you're, you're just going to fall short of doing anything that's, that's really meaningful with biomimicry. Yep. And, you know, you have to keep going back to that organism over and over again and say, teach me again. That's the reconnect. How do we keep on going back to the natural world to ask the question? Because biomimicry is a process. You know, it's not a body of work. It's, it's really a practice of having this deepening conversation with the rest of the natural world because we believe that we are young here, we are, and that we have a lot to learn, especially in Western industrial culture. We're not the first people to have asked these questions. What I find fascinating is that, it, like, we're dancing with the limits of language use um, to some extent because... On the one end, you're saying we are nature, and then we're still speaking about learning from nature. And and yeah. um, there's such a trap in othering nature just by speaking, using from instead of as. Yes. You also, both in the Biomimicry Institute and the Biomimicry Guild, um, use um, life. Like there's this powerful um, phrase, life creates conditions conducive to life. It's it, for me, this it just nails it. Um, it. And what it does is actually invites an epistemological shift. Like suddenly you look at life as a planetary process that creates planetarily as a whole, a condition for the whole to thrive. It's the exact opposite right. of the kind of individualistic species against species, individual against individual. It's it's taking Gregory Bateson seriously by, by saying that the, the unit of evolution is not the individual or the species, but the individual, the species, and the environment. And, and so it's sometimes easier to learn from life. And, of course, life mm -hmm. expressed through all of its natural expressions. Um, how, how do you dance with the, the nuances between how we use nature and life and, um, and also this this because it's often in terms of design and infrastructure building and all the kind of stuff one would consult on, sometimes difficult for people to see this dynamic systemic perspective of how it all mm -hmm. needs to fit into this sort of scale linking healing of from individual to community to ecosystems to planetary health. I've worked with this question my whole life 
our relationship with the rest of the natural world and how it's changed through time. Ours meaning the human species. And at this time in history for Western industrial culture, I think it's just time for us to take a pause, take a breath and ask nature, ask the rest of nature. Have the humility to quiet your cleverness, listen, echo what you hear, give thanks, right? Like that, if it sounds familiar, it's very much how indigenous peoples would learn about their places, frankly, uh, it from a point of humility. And we have lost that practice, right? So what we do is we say, okay, we're going to do regeneration now. And we kind of know what it is. We know that it has to do with bringing forth life. Bringing forth is to generate, to regenerate, to make sure that it's brought forth again and again and again. We know that it, it's that we have to, in order to do that, we have to create the conditions conducive to life. We know all of those things, but they're conceptual. When I walk into a forest that where a fire has happened, which I get to do in Western Montana, believe me, and I watch over the next 30 years how it comes back, how it re-knits itself into something similar with the same soul but different, that's regeneration. Like that's what we need to be studying because it's not just the process of coming back as a forest. It's the fact that the forest as a system worked together to create the conditions so that it could come back. And I think just under, we understand that we have hobbled that those conditions, right? We have, we have degraded that those conditions of the natural world. And now much of our work in the coming decades is to be, and this is a phrase that Dana has taught me, be on the healing team, not the healers, but on the healing team. And we rush in with our capes thinking we know, but so many of us don't actually spend the time to learn the patterns processes, and the moves that nature makes, the rest of nature makes, these systems, to enrich itself and renew itself over time. So biomimicry is simply a, it's a reminder to quiet our cleverness and actually listen. That listen part, before we get into the action, that needs to be, you know, required for human, a required course for humanity right now. Yeah, I mean, I think you hit on something that's an opportunity and incredibly challenging, which is the limitations of the English language. Because the words have to do two things. They have to capture, to the best of their ability, what's going on out there. And English is inadequate to capture what's going on out there. But the second thing they have to do is actually have to meet people where they are. Right. They have to they have to meet people where where they are, but help them begin to see where they could be or they might be or they should be. And so we have these constraints around um, language, around nature or life and nature is resource. Like you go through the state of Idaho and the, you know, all the signs say, you know, <laughs> nature is resource. And it's like, and, and not even recognizing there's something wholly fundamentally wrong with that perception. Yeah. Um, we advised, uh, you know, one of our, our clients recently where they had, you know, nature is commodity. And I'm like, 
<laughs> you know, nature is a living thing. This is life. Life is not a commodity. Um, and so it's like that constant tension around seeking so desperately to capture the vibrancy and the energy that embodies the end dimensionality of thriveability in life. Um, and and how much we should be humbled in the very presence of all of that elegance and still having to like be able to stand on stage and not lose people, right? But the one phrase, life creates conditions conducive to life, creates conditions conducive to life, creates conditions, right? You can imagine that just as a, a, a perpetual thing is about as spot on and as perfect as it could possibly be. Um, I don't think there is a better way to say that. And that's why it's at the core and center of our life's principles. Um, another phrase that you mention in your frameworks, which for me really encapsulates the the essence of biomimicry, is nature as model, nature as measure, nature as mentor. Can you just unpick the meaning of that phrase for us? Yeah, that phrase uh, first appeared in Janine's book, and it's been one that stuck. Right, that it, that it does a beautiful job of explaining the different ways in which we can view and value uh, the, the rest of the species on the planet. Um, and so model is clear, right? Like there's a, there's a model, there's an example, there's a lesson, there's something that we can draw from and apply to our, our world. Um, and what, what I love about the other two, you know, nature as measure gives us an opportunity to like, check ourselves, like, how are we doing, right? Are we in alignment with these other species? I mean, there's, I mean, I don't know what the latest estimates are, but at least 30 million other species. And I mean, there's just so much wisdom that's out there. And so uh, there's a lot of reference points that we can use to, to, to get a reality check on how well we're doing, especially as a species with such a big ego, so nature as measure is really doing that, um, that piece of it. And then um, what I like to think about as nature as mentor is in the realm of the aspiration, right? Like, so you, you, you have a mentor is someone who guides you and helps you strive to be your very best self. Um, and, you know, as humans, we often look towards elder humans as mentors, but uh, biomimicry offers that maybe we should look towards elder other species more than human um, as our as our mentors that we strive towards. We strive to act and behave and 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 move and practice in the ways of the world that that these mentors offer us. Thinking about other species as wisdom keepers, it really highlights not only how much we have to learn from the living world. Um, as you've both been telling us, but also just how far we've deviated from our role as a keystone species in the ecosystems that we inhabit. And I just wondered, um, Janine, from your your work at that intersection of you know science, culture, and literature, and and your time as a natural historian, what are your thoughts around where we're at right now as a species? Are we even capable of correcting the path that we're on? Well, it's a big, that's a big answer. I mean, one thing I will say is that this naked ape is afraid. There's a lot of fear that we have when confronting the vagaries, uncertainties, whether harvests will come, whether the caribou will come back. 
There's a lot of fear. And, the, and when dominator cultures try to push that fear down, there's a way you can deal with it, right? You can, you can reach out to those organisms and try to, be, try to understand them better so that you can be in a cycle with them. And hopefully the caribou will come back next year and you'll understand how you might make this place more inviting for them. Another way is a dominator culture, um, whether it's the church or whether it's poor empire, blood and treasure, they realized that if you dominate and subdue, you can make yourself feel as if you are no longer vulnerable, biologically vulnerable. And that's our illusion. That's our illusion. We can try out a different cultural answer to that fear, but I think we have to acknowledge our biological vulnerability. And then we get to acknowledge that we're home and that we are interdependent. And that's what scares us. We want to be independent and we're interconnected. And that's the gift. And we, Western industrial culture, we forgot we're held, right? We're held. We'd rather have that certainty of domination and look where it's gotten us, right? So it's, that's why we're turning now. That's why all of this is happening. There's a beautiful story that you've actually both modeled rather than taught by simply being able to build a partnership that has lasted 25 years. And there must be something deep to learn from that because you, you, you have both different strengths and you've set up your collaboration in an interesting way with, with sort of almost like a Janus head-like um, structure of two organizations facing in two different directions, sort of education, teaching, and helping people who got a little bit of that implement in, in business. Um, how did this wonderful... 25 year and more um, friendship and partnership and successful partnership um, begin. We often talk about how many partnerships don't make it. And we're like, well, look at us. Here we are. Um, in fact, in, in, by the time this podcast comes out, it will be in 26 years. And um, and in fact, last year we, we celebrated our silver anniversary. We had a little silver anniversary party online. And in preparation for um, having our 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 party we reflected on some work that we did a few years ago which was on how nature um, builds and and has enduring mutualisms and enduring partnerships and we realized in that reflection that those four key criteria that nature uses to keep mutualisms intact and thriving over time were indeed the same four criteria that the two of us have used um, and probably more in an emergent than an intentional way. But it was a very nice reinforcement of why it's, it's worked out so, so beautifully. Um, we, we both live in Montana And we met in Montana. There's not very many people living in Montana. And even 26 years ago, we're not very many. And um, I was in my doctoral program. And I had always gone back and forth between, you know, Janine has split between uh, English and literature and, and, and the sciences. And I, my, my version was between biology and design. 
and and fine art and so and and really an ethos i was so frustrated with biology not having an ethos it was it was just either learning science and learning about mm-hmm. nature just to learn about it and not do anything with it just collect knowledge or if you were going to do something with it it was politicized like you're for the forest service and you're justifying cutting down trees or whatever and and, and neither of those satisfied my needs um And I was in a class. I heard about this book that had just been published. I walked out of the class, went to the bookstore, bought the book, sat down, read it in one sitting. This was Janine's book, and it was just two months after it had been published. And uh, and I was like, this is what I want to do. This is what I'm going to do with my life. This is exactly it. This is the this is this everything that I've been searching and all the interstitial spaces is right here. And um, it took me a week or two to sort of get up the nerve. This was back when there was white pages and I could look up Benyus in the white pages and I found Janine in the white pages. Um, and I, I, I gave her a call and she remembers the call more than I do. I just remember being incredibly nervous to even make the call. Uh, but she welcomed me down to her home and I showed up at noon and left at two o'clock in the morning. So our very first meeting was a 14 hour talk fest. Seriously. My partner, Laura fed us and watered us and we sat on the floor. We had whiteboards. Um, and yeah, and then, and that was January, 26 years ago. Uh, so, and, and here we are. And, um, part of what I think has worked out really well, you talked about, you know, I mean, we've. We fill different roles and and different um, niches and complement each other in that space. Uh, And one of the things we figured out, gosh, at least, I don't know how long ago Janine it was, maybe 18 years ago or something. We we recognized that one thing that Janine was very, very good at was the noun, like tracking what's happening with biomimicry in the world. Like who's doing what? What are the stories? What are the examples? What's the... um, the thing that gives it heft. And she took over the noun and I took over the verb, <laughs> you know? So how do you do this thing? What, what is it? What is the practice? What's the methodology? How can we teach people? How can we have people um, make this work happen in the world? And then how do we keep track of what that is and, and set a vision for, for the future? Um, and so, yeah, our complementarity of that and our deep mutual respect for each other and love of each other um, has been instrumental, I think, in just having this endure. But um, it, was, it was beautiful to see that we, we in an emergent way, did model um, our very mentors in, in terms of mutualisms. We did. I mean, we're... We're both biologists. We have biology in us. And I think we, it just emerged out of us. We didn't even think about it as, but yeah, we, we did, you know, it's, it's, it's contributing different gifts. Mutualists give to each other something that they themselves are, you know, can do, but would rather not in a way, right? There were things I, I really, Dana's an incredible teacher. And I mean, she can take any concept and think of, amazing exercises to bring people through it's amazing and she's just a really that's an incredible gift and we realized we had to because biomimicry was a word that was not yet known um we had to and it was a field it was an emerging field we had to train a workforce that's a 
big job. So we both worked on, you know, what would need to be, what kind of information would need to be imparted, right? Like information or, or practices or, but that 14 hours, we scoped out what we had to do to naturalize biomimicry in the culture, everything from K through 12 to university classes, to working with companies. To, we, we had it there, but what, I guess it just came out of what we realized, and I realized as being the noun of this, the cultural import, the inflection point that biomimicry is in our culture, how we had gone so far away. And for 250 years of science had been learning about nature, but, but now it was turning to learn from nature. What a big, what a big shift. I, I understood the cultural shift of that. And then I also understood that it could be a gold rush without ethics. And Dana and I were very aligned on the, the need for not just explaining what we think biomimicry is and could be, but really what it, what it should move, move away from. That you should look to the natural world also to say what biomimicry isn't. You don't want to get your, your morals from a lion or an ant. You, know, you don't want to re recreate social Darwinism, right? There's a lot of things that we, we started to think. We started to think, oh my goodness, what if somebody learns how a gecko walks and then patents that so that no one else can, can, can ever make an adhesive that doesn't have toxic glue in it? What do we do about that? And that, that became, some lawyers told us, do it, you know, publish publish gecko work in a design context. And that's how Ask Nature started. So we, we knew how important this was. And so we said, okay, what is biomimicry? What isn't biomimicry? What are the parts of it? What are life's principles? So that people don't stop at just, you know, gonna make a wind turbine with well, well bumps on it, you know, and then I'm gonna, you know, make it in a sweatshop. And we thought through that and we thought, well, Humans need tools. They need tools and, and you know, and, and in the natural world, information that is key to, key to survival and thrival is encoded in the DNA. And now we know even epigenetically, right? It's, it's encoded though. So we started to encode things, start to write things down, write frameworks down, right? And then we started to give them away. So then the, then the next thing was, do we patent all of this ourselves do we put trademarks all over everything and do we and we said if we're the keepers of of the wisdom keeper west integrity keepers for the wisdom keepers let's you know keep on talking about life's principles talk about the ethics this is not transgenic engineering that's not biomimicry and so what what we decided is our job is to keep that integrity and just keep repeating it and spreading it. As you were speaking, Janine, I was reminded of a story that's in your book where you talk about the airplane, um, which of course is one of the most famous biomimetic inventions in recent history. And it's quite chilling. You say that in 1903, we flew like a bird for the first time. And then by 1914, we were dropping bombs from the sky, which is that ultimate cautionary tale of why the ethos is so critically important to the practice of biomimicry. And I just wondered if you could 
both talk a little bit about how you're cultivating that ethos in practitioners and, and students um, through the wonderful work that you're doing at the Biomimicry Institute. Um, but also tell us a little bit about your recent endeavours around um, Project Positive. Dana, why don't you talk about um, the education piece? Yeah, and I think part of it is recognising that, you know, in order to bring about the change that we need in the world, there is a critical component of not just awareness, but being able to, like, do the work. We need to have the world embodying this as a practice, and the way to do that is to have a lot of examples, so more people are inspired by those examples. And how do you get examples? But you you need to train people. Um and, you know, to be frank, I was impatient for elementary kids to grow up and do this. And so I focused straight on the people that could already start doing it. Um, and while we have a program that's at, you know, we, we have the graduate, it's the first and only master's degree in biomimicry in the world. It's offered um, online. Um, our, we've got practitioners. We have working professionals that take this program. And, and they're the biologists and engineers and artists and designers and sustainability professionals and business people and everything in between. And they're putting it to work right away. And we also go all the way down to, you know, the elementary level through the Institute's work through the K through 12 with curricula that is designed to bring it directly into formal and informal education. And there's a whole biomimicry educators network of teachers that are trying to practice this and, and are trying to teach it to to whatever age group that they are reaching. And so there's materials that are shared. They're all shared on Ask Nature. There's places where you can swap and, and see and, and learn from best practices. So it's really a, a very big part of, of the work is keeping it spreading out in the world. Um, so, you know, the two main tools that we use are the biomimicry thinking uh, methodology and life's principles, and they both have at its core, you know, life creates conditions conducive to life. And if you didn't follow anything else but that guideline, then then you'd be set. If you replace the first word life with my project, my design, my business, my whatever, creates conditions conducive to life, then you're set. Of course, the question is how, and then you have to go out and, and work on the how. Yeah. But it's embedded yeah. in what we teach. The ethos is not like, oh, yeah, and by the way, you better do this responsibly. If you're following the, the practice, if you're following biomimicry thinking, there are multiple places where you do that check with life's principles. We also give people tools like Ask Nature, where you can put in a function and that you're trying to solve for and, and out will come all of these great biological ideas. And then for the practice, we have design challenges. We have the youth design challenge, middle school through high school. And we have uh, the launch pad, which is early stage biomimetic ideas that are people have usually in university or in their garage. And we try to help them get to the next step. And then we have the Ray of Hope prize, which is biomimicry startups. So we're having 300 companies a year come to us, start, small startup companies in biomimicry. And what you do in those courses, because they're like six to nine week cohort programs, you learn biomimicry. We teach, you know, we give them software for toxicology software. We, you know, we hook them up with advice that they wouldn't afford otherwise. I mean, it's really interesting. And then, and then hopefully get them through that valley of death. And you, you asked about Project Positive. 
So let me give you a little bit about that because it's exciting. And it is a lot of our work these days. If 3 billion of us join the planet between now and 2050, let's hope that it's less than that. But if projections that 3 billion join the planet, we are creating a city for 1 million every five days. So we decided to get into the built world. We said, well, let's do, let's, let's mimic the ecosystem next door. If we want our cities to function like ecosystems, let's go next door and see how it's functioning. And what functioning means is like, what, what is it that makes it healthy? And what, one of the ways you can study how healthy an ecosystem is, is by studying what ecological benefits it produces. So if, it, if it's really working well, if dirty water comes into a forest, it'll leave cleaner. So it cleans water. That's how you can tell it's healthy. Is it cycling nutrients well? Is it supporting enough habitat? Is it cleaning air? Right. All of these things, is it cooling? Is it, is it changing the microclimate and cooling in the summers? So you can actually measure those things. So we go and we measure the ecosystem next door, whether it's a forest. It's what the, it's what the land would be if, if we weren't building there or if we weren't retrofitting there. And we say, okay, it would be a prairie or it would be a forest. And then we, we literally look at all of those functions, those gifts that it's giving. And we say, okay, and we know as, as ecologists know what it takes to create that kind of habitat. And it's not just landscaping. It's not just a green roof. It's also your infrastructure. You're not going to be putting in asphalt. You're going to be putting in permeable pavement because you want water storage. You want that positive effect of, of storing enough water. You're going to put pollinator pathways. You're going to put all of those things together, those, those individual design interventions, you know, to create CO2 sequestering concrete. Um, to put in HVAC systems that clean the air so that dirty air comes in and it, pu it pumps the air out to the neighboring communities cleaner than when it came in. I mean, for us to really function with our buildings, our sidewalks, our pipeways, everything, our infrastructure and ecostructure, like the ecosystem next door, that's that aspirational goal. And it's beyond net zero. It's, I mean, we need to get to net zero, but it's, it's what positive is. And when we talk about nature positive, we just try to get very practical things. So about 15 years ago, we started this and we've just been developing tools. We have a scenario tool now, an iPad enabled app that allows you to literally go out and measure by measuring the landscape attributes. You can figure out what this system does and, and how it performs and how much water it cycles. And, and then you can go back to your place and say, mine doesn't do that. That's the current performance. Here's the ecological performance. Um, let's design into that gap so that our performance comes up to the Emerald standard. It is biomimicry at a systems level and it's completely place-based. So it literally is the place next door. It's completely different in Phoenix than Vermont or Belgium or Netherlands. And it's completely different and it should be. And it's the only universal set of metrics that's 
place-based, right? Like the, the fact that it can be applied no matter what built environment, no matter what location, and yet it has to be by its very nature attuned to what that place tells us is appropriate. And it's not limited just to the environmental. It also brings in the, you know, the social, the historical, the economic. And, and then the lessons that the lessons you draw from that place to de- then design the solutions are also attuned. So your standards, your metrics come from the place, not from a bunch of humans sitting around and saying, this is what we think, but from the ecosystem telling us this is what's important here. Um, And then the design solutions to help solve for the gap are also derived from what evolved in that place to thrive, right? You're not being like, oh, I'm going to go learn from the polar bear and apply it to the Sonoran Desert. Like you, you actually are drawing from the wisdom of the cacti to figure out what does it mean to store water here? Because that R&D has been tested in that place already. I mean, this makes so clear how biomimicry is actually fundamentally a regenerative design practice, because the the key um, sort of quality check on regenerative versus sort of sustainability solutioneering is that it has to be place-sourced, Regenesis calls it, drawn out of the place. But when you put this into practice with large companies or in that space of incubating innovation, and then the angel investors come in and say, well, that's a really good idea. There's always this danger in the current playing field um, that the question comes, how do we scale it up and how do we do we take this everywhere? And so, and and Dana, you and I have actually been consulting on a particular project together where that came up as well for a large global um, company. Um, How would we re-regionalize? How would we learn one of nature's key lessons that nature designs in the region for the region where resources coming in at that very time through solar income and does so in a way that is fundamentally non-toxic in yep. what it leaves over. How 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 do we bring, like in your in your, both of your work, um, working with these very large companies at points? Um, how do you bring that thinking into an economic system that is so predicated on this? Um, let's scale it up. Let's take it international. Let's. I think part of it, back to the semantic question, our assumption on scale is that it's the same thing repeated over and over again. And of course, we could say, well, nature didn't have a problem scaling anything. Look, it's, you know, it's all over the planet and it's doing just fine. And so part of it is changing the definition of scale and helping people understand that there's multiple ways to scale. But it requires like some of those fundamental questions to be reframed, just like, you know, the back to that fear-based thing you were talking about, Janine, and people are like, oh, I want to hold on to what's mm-hmm. familiar. And then they just sort of freak out when something starts feeling unfamiliar, no matter how compelling it is, and they, they lock up and seize up. So you still have that. And so part of this shift is teaching people to embrace what, possibilities can come about with change as opposed to, you know, we're here to help you feel comfortable with, with non-change, which of course is nonsense. You know, I remember one of our clients, the, the person said to me, like, 
yeah, this is great what you're proposing, but we're not a nonprofit. Like we're a business. Like, you know, and she was just so offended. I'm Uh like, well, how can you not be a business and also do this? So some of it's around like getting through the mental blocks that people have. It's, it's actually, it's not a technical problem. It's not a practical problem. It's a storytelling problem. Um, And it's the story. And so a lot of what we do is we tell stories with the intention of changing mindsets and changing perspectives and helping people fall in love again. Because when you're in love, um, when you're in love with the communities, when you're in love with the places that we, you know, the lands that we touch, as Janine says, then, then the intention comes from the right place. And then you're willing to put in the hard work. You're willing to do the evolutionary steps one iteration at a time to get there. Just to pick up on what you just said, Dana, around love for our places, we've found, and I don't want to give too much away because we're recording these out of sync, but we've found that love is something all of the guests this series have really come back to, almost like an an anchor that's grounded all of our conversations. And for me, it comes back to what you were saying, Janine, around our desire to be held, um, which is you know, the most beautiful way of phrasing it. Because if we feel that we are held by nature, that we're part of the living world, then we can act as nature, as a, you know, responsible participant in that wider web of life and act with love and care and stewardship, which we so desperately need right now. So I just wondered if either of you would like to elaborate a little on that aspect of love and where it fits within biomimicry. Oh, it's at the heart of it. I mean, at the heart, we, we know that this is not, at, at the heart of this, uh, it's not a technological solution that's going to bring us back home. It's a love for this place and this knowledge that, that we're homesick and that we belong here. We belong here and, and it's been too long and, that's the ultimate, like, what will it be like in a biomimetic future? People say to me, and I'm like, you'll just feel like you're at home if we get this right. And I think we should assume we will assume it's our true nature. Assume our true nature is to love and not to be afraid. For me, this all started with love. Like as young as I can possibly remember, I was so in love with nature. And I was, I was actually pretty fricking mortified to be a human. I was, I, even as a kid, I was just like, oh, I am so embarrassed that this is how my fellow species is behaving. And, and, and as a young child, I was like, I love you guys so much. And, and I committed very, very early to kind of redeem you know, humanity, like I got to redeem us because I'm so in love with, with every, everyone else. Um, and, and so that's like at the core of, of what it is for me. And I can't imagine it being anywhere else. I mean, it might come out as, you know, logical or anything like that in different circumstances, but it's, it's comes from that deep, deep love of the capital L life. 
And I'm often struck by that adage around true partnerships um, will always make it as long as both partners are committed to staying in love, right? Even if it gets really rocky and really shitty. And, but as long as you don't, as long as both still hold on to wanting to make it work. And I think that's true here too. That's right. As long as we humans <laughs> and the more than nature, the rest of nature is committed to making this re- relationship work and staying in love, then we're going to be okay. We're going to make it. It's going to be hard. It's going to get ugly. Um, but if that fundamental piece of love is never lost by, by all parties, um, then, then we'll be okay. You summed it up by, if, if we love life, life will love us back. Thank you for your time and thank you for your amazing work in the world. I've, I've learned a lot. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed episode one of Regeneration Rising series two. If this episode has inspired your thinking, please check out the show notes for links and resources and to find out how you can be part of the regeneration. In celebration of the launch of Regeneration Rising, we're offering a special promotion for listeners to join our global community of RSA Fellows. Our fellowship is a network of over 31,000 innovators, educators and entrepreneurs committed to finding better ways of thinking, acting and delivering change. To receive a 25% discount off your first year of membership and a waived registration fee, visit the rsa.org and use the discount code RSAPOD on your application form. See the show notes for terms and conditions. 